Uh, what a classic to start this hour off. Wet, wet, wet and love is all around. Taken from the film, Daniel? Four Weddings and a Funeral. Um, the scene in which Hugh Grant and Andy McDowell finally get it together. And that's not a spoiler because it's been out for nearly 20 years. It has, yes. Uh, it's, uh, incidentally, um, there was a wonderful joke which someone made on the day of the royal wedding. Somebody put on um, Twitter, is it just me or is this director's cut of Four Weddings going on a bit? <laughs> <laughs> like that one. Anyway, good morning to Daniel Mumby. It's good to be back. It's yes. lovely to see you back. Thank yes, you. I mean, busy doing one thing or another. Yes, we can't uh, talk <laughs> yes. about exactly what, but um, suffice to say there was an election and yes. stuff happened and yeah. well done. Now let's anyway. go back to something more, yes, more interesting, yes. like filmed. Anyway, before we just move off the uh, the music, because the reason I picked it up was there was a poll out just over a week ago of the top five um, selling um, filmed uh, tracks of all time. Okay. And this was actually at number three. What was the other, what was it uh, number one? Do you um, something from Greece, would you believe? Fair enough. Yes. And just because I don't like it doesn't mean it's not good. Summer nights and all that, you know, the, yeah. the sloppy one. Don't subject me to yes. that again. And Greece was also at number five. Um, Would that have been Tell Me... No, because that's the same song. Um, the, the other one, You're the One That I Want. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the trousers so tight they had to sew Olivia Newton-John into her costume. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. And I'll try and remember what number two and number four are before the end of the show. Yeah. I got a feeling it was Lionel Richie and one that quite surprised me. Um, but... Uh, okay. Because I didn't know it was in a film. That's why it surprised me. Well, um, we'll find that, that out it was a, a, well, a good seller. Okay. It's so long since we've been together, I don't think I've heard of any of these uh, movies in the top ten. Well, listen and learn. <laughs> listen and learn. Uh, I think I understand uh, what, which one's at number ten, though. I think I, I know the storyline for this. Well, I think I do, anyway. Red Riding Hood? Yeah, it's um, Catherine Hardwick's retelling of the Red Riding Hood myth, sort of taking it back from beyond the Grimm's fairy tales, which sort of took the original version of Red Riding Hood written by, um, well... There's a sort of folklore, and then Charles Perrault, the French writer, put in the sort of stuff about werewolves and so forth. He was the guy who adapted the um, story of Cinderella, but mistakenly got um, the glass slipper wrong, because in the original <laughs> version, because he mistranslated it as um, glass instead of squirrel fur. But that's by the by. Um, it's not the best adaptation of Red Riding Hood by quite some distance. I mean, a lot of the critics have sort of kicked it because of its relationship to Twilight. The director, Catherine Hardwick, directed the first Twilight film. And I don't think that's fair, but on the other hand, the film is quite hammy so it looks sort of creakily made and it doesn't have any of the fairy tale substance of something like freeway or hard candy so it's a sort of an interesting idea but disappointing execution right okay now this this next one at number nine we did preview a few weeks ago didn't we source code yeah and it's still the smartest film on release i mean it's not as good as a moon but uh, and the ending doesn't quite work. I mean, it's it's sort of like the happy ending of Brazil in the sense that you can understand why they did it, but there needs to be a sort of another bit on the end for it to work all the time. But I do think Junkin Jones, who directed Moon and this, is a very smart filmmaker. He's got a great visual style, the substance running all the way through it. It's a proper ideas-driven sci-fi film, and I think it's Jake Gyllenhaal's best performance since Donnie Darko. Must go and see it. Yeah, yes. you really should. Right, so I'm just seeing the write-up for this one. Sounds fascinating. Kyle Kingston has it all. Looks, intelligence, wealth and opportunity and a wicked cruel streak beastly yeah i mean it it seems on the surface to have the same sort of basic problem as red riding hood because it is essentially trying to take a fairy tale that everyone has another in this case beauty and the beast and sort of retelling it in a sort of um modern day context in this case sort of situating it in a high school and there is there is a supporting performance by uh, vanessa hudgens who was in the high school musical series um it is actually a little bit more successful in the sense that it's interesting in this sort of period in which 
you know, there's a lot of stuff around the sort of high school era which is very sort of superficial and tacky and so forth, sort of like Mean Girls but without the irony. It's interesting to sort of reapproach a story which is essentially about sort of inner beauty and sort of being true to yourself and uh, the idea that uh, if you remember the ending of Beauty and the Beast, particularly in the Disney version, the one who physically seems least human actually is the one who has the most in the way of a yeah, heart. Yeah. Um, in the end, it is a bit ham-fisted and it isn't as good as the Disney version or indeed the John Cocteau version from the 40s, which is very strange if you've ever seen that La Bella La Bette, which has got very interesting special effects in. No, but if you're But if you're a fan of sort of... If you like sort of Twilight or you're a fan of sort of high school... Um, anxiety films like Easy A recently, or I suppose even the work of John Hughes, you might find something in it that's sort of charming and interesting. Yes. It's one of those classic uh, performances, the same live on ice, and it's, it, it works really well on ice, Beauty and the Beast. Oh, I'll take your uh, word for it. It's, uh, I'm trying to remember who did it, no, it might come back to me. Anyway, number seven is another one I haven't heard of called Hop. Well, I take it's an animation live action. Yeah, we, we reviewed this um, a few weeks ago. Oh, did we? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that must have been memorable. But, but uh, this is the thing, I don't blame you for not memory. It, it is right. Rubbish. I mean, it's an out of date. It's now out of date rubbish because it's an Easter Bunny film, and we're what two weeks after Easter now, so it'll be out by next week. Just Russell Brand isn't funny, right? Scream Four at number six. Now, I've thought about this for quite a while, and I'm still a bit conflicted by it. I mean, it, it is the, it's the fourth in the Scream series, which was created by Wes Craven in the '90s and sort of sent up the whole. It took the slasher movie, which had sort of ripened and rotted in the 1980s, and it sort of made it sort of postmodern, sort of you know being self-aware and all that sort of stuff. And on the one hand, it's nice to see Wes Craven back in cinemas and uh, having some success because he is a smart, proper horror director who knows that horror films are not just about locking young people in lingerie in rooms for two hours and torturing them. Yeah. They can actually be about ideas. I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street is a very interesting sort of attempt to put surrealism on screen, but in a sort of blood and guts way. And in terms of the stuff that the film's attacking, in terms of, you know, the torture porn, well, the alleged torture porn, sometimes in the Saw movies, it does, those are things that deserve a good kicking. The problem is that all the sort of self-aware meta stuff that the original Scream did had sort of run its course by the time you got through to the end of Scream 2, and the more... The more sort of meta and self-aware the film becomes, the less opportunity there is, in my opinion, for sort of emotional involvement. And if you're not emotionally involved with something, you can't really be scared by it. So I think it's something to see if you're a fan of the original three, and by all accounts it's better than the third one, but otherwise I think it's, it's certainly not the place to start. Right. Fascinating film at number five, um, Arthur. Remake of Arthur, yeah. Were you? Oh, it's a remake, is yeah, it? Were you, I was, not was a re wondering. Not a re-release. Were you a fan of the original? Uh, I, yes, I loved it. Yeah, Absolutely I, I loved really love it as well. So. We're agreed, for yes. once. Now, here's the thing. The thing that makes the original work, and I don't know whether you agree with this, it's... If you take the storyline of Arthur, which is, you know, rich, brattish billionaire having problems, it's, it doesn't sound appealing, but the thing that makes that film work is the performance of Dudley Moore. Indeed. I mean, he is a wonderful sort of... Well, both of the star performances, really. Yeah, I mean, yes. Liza Minnelli is more sort of a foil, but I do yes. like her, but Dudley Moore has that sort of way of, of sort of holding his face so that he can act like a child and yet be sort of completely endearing. There was that wonderful quote from um, his agent during his sort of Hollywood heyday in the 70s and 80s. He was, he was nicknamed the sex thimble because <laughs> he'd got all the girls, but he was very, very short. Yes. And the problem with this remake is that Russell Brand, I mean... Based upon the trailer, he's funnier than he has been in a couple of his films, in yep. the sense that there are one or two good gags, but he simply doesn't have that, that sense of innate charm. You're sort yeah. of... It's a, it's a version of the film in which the women come across a lot worse, because you have sort of... There's a sequence in it of Jennifer Garner, who's sort of playing the rich girl he doesn't want to marry, yeah. trying to sort of seduce him by crawling along the floor in S&M gear, and then she gets magnet attracted to a magnetised bed, and you think, well... 
yes, but why did you have to do that? Why can't right. you just sort of play it with the... So, it's, it's not terrible, but it is much more sort of mean-spirited and painted with some broad strokes. So I get the feeling those who've seen the original loved it won't enjoy it this time around. No, I, I, no, the original is a much better film, so get it on DVD instead. Right. Rio at number four. Which is no perfectly decent animation from the makers of Ice Age. It didn't need to be in 3D and the story's nothing to write home about, but no, there's nothing in it that's problematic and it, the design's quite good. Okay. We have a couple of new entries in the top three. I don't think I've heard of either of them, but number three, Insidious. Which is currently, if you believe the box office statistics, the most profitable film of the year, because it costs so little to make and it's made something like $80 million in um, America and um, Europe. Excellent. Um, well, you say that, I mean, you, we're going to get into a whole argument about can a film be good if it, if it took a lot of money, to which the answer clearly is no. Um, the problem with this is, I mean, it's made by the people who were sort of behind Paranormal Activity, which is, you know, took the sort of found footage motif and, you know, tried to do something interesting with it. And the problem with Insidious is that as much as there are sort of things in it that you admire in terms of, you know, it looks pretty professional for a film that was made for no money at all in the same way of Paranormal Activity, the problem is it isn't scary enough. And it does end up being a sort of rip-off of a load of um, films from the 60s and 70s. I mean, you will sit there, because it's you now a film with a creepy kid in, so you will sit there thinking, why aren't I watching The Omen? Why aren't I watching Rosemary's Baby? Why aren't I watching Village of the Damned? And incidentally, go and watch John Carpenter's remake of Village of the Damned, which isn't actually all that bad. So, it's admirable in the sense of what they've done with the money, but it isn't scary enough, and if a horror film isn't scary, it's not doing its job. Right. Just off number one to number two, Fast and Furious 5. Or Fast 5, as some people are calling it. It's I can't even remember Fast and Furious 1. I, so. I should say I haven't seen any of the other four. Um, put that straight out there. It is completely dumb and over the top, like so many blockbusters. I mean, if you haven't seen the trailer, then... If you've seen the trailer, sorry, then it is just in a sort of load of stunts which don't make any sense. I mean, it is what it is. It's a leave-your-brain-at-the-door film, and if that's your sort of thing, or if you're a fan of the earlier ones, you'll enjoy it. Otherwise, there's plenty of better stuff out there. Right. And a new entry at number one. Its title makes it sound interesting, so tell me all about it. Thor. Yeah, it's the new film from Kenneth Branagh. Um, do you like Kenneth Branagh as a director? Um... Have you seen Frankenstein? Yes, yes. Like yeah. it? Or not? Uh, it's okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I probably wouldn't have known he was the director, though. That's I sort of don't stay for that bit of the, uh, the subtitles at the end, but... It's uh, in the opening credits as well. Yeah. But, but too busy eating my ice cream normally. Honestly. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's new film. And Kenneth Branagh is an interesting director because he sort of... He started off doing the sort of Shakespeare, in the way that Laurence Olivier used to direct Shakespeare. You know, he made his version of Hamlet and his version of Henry V. Of course, Branagh's version of Hamlet ra famously runs to over four hours. You know, yeah. he, was he was dedicated with that one. Um, but ever since Frankenstein, he's had this sort of mad, sort of histrionic, almost operatic streak. And the last thing he did before this was The Magic Flute, which had a libretto written by Stephen Fry. So it was, it was very accessible. But it was also completely bonkers because you had the sort of Rhine maidens driving through in tanks in full sort of body armour. And it's it's a retelling, it's sort of a, an adaptation of a Marvel comic book in which, you know, the the God of Thunder played yeah. by Chris Elmsworth is sent, is banished from, you know, is it Valhalla, the Norse kingdom? I think yes, by his is, father, played is. by Sir Anthony Hopkins in a brilliant piece oh, of casting. Wonderful. Yes. And it's sort of, you know, he has to recover his hammer, so there's a yeah. sort of Excalibur plot point and he sort of has to blend in with the real yeah. world. It is bonkers, and it's, you know, it's done in a way which is completely over the top, but if you're a fan of things like... Flash Gordon, which yeah. again, which I am, and I'm a big fan of Flash Gordon. There is something incredibly appealing in just the 
the knowing sense of silliness. It's yes. like, we're going to crank this up and we know we're doing something which is, well, not rubbish, but just, no, absurd. Yeah. Come and enjoy the fun. Yeah. And it and is Flash Gordon just works at every possible level. Oh, absolutely. It? The kids will just enjoy every moment of it and the adults know it was a complete uh, Mickey take. It's yeah, great. Yeah, when we, um, you can find a review of Flash Gordon on the podcast section of the Lionheart website because it was one of the first things that Paul and I reviewed. Yes. And it's very much a film that you... When you see it as a young kid, you love it. Then when you see it again as a teenager, you think, well, it's a bit embarrassing. And then you get the joke when you're a little yes. bit older. So. Yeah, I think it's one of the great films of all time. It's still uh, one of the highest grossing in Britain as well. Yes. I'll so. have to see if we've got the, uh, the track on the, uh, on the system. We'll, play that. we'll do that to play us out, because I think yes. it's on there. Yes, yes. Right, so that's the top ten. Uh, coming up after uh, Bruno Mars, we have a nice, gentle, relaxing, soft film to talk about. A long good Friday. <laughs> yes. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live from Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. Bruno Mars and Grenade. Daniel Mumby here, uh, looking at films. It's time for our cult film. And originally we, we chose this because it was going to be on Good Friday and we didn't quite get there for <laughs> yes. one reason or another. So, the longest Good Friday. Or the long overdue Good Friday, <laughs> you know, insert pun of your choice yes. here. Um, 1979, a groundbreaking British gangster film um, released in some areas in 1980, but it is a 79 yes. film. And if you're a fan of the work of of the early work of Guy Ritchie sort of before he became a decent director with Sherlock Holmes this is the film to which all of his early work owes a debt it's the debut film from John McKenzie who was known in the business as Frenzy McKenzie because of his ability to work quicker than anyone else and this film was made for something like under five million pounds entirely on location in London in less than three weeks including post-production right. so that's a quick turnaround so cheap films can be good films exactly I mean that's I think one of the, the central um, ideas of this slot is the yes. idea that you don't have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to create something memorable. Um, like um, Frank Rodham, who directed Quadrophenia, which we talked about, must be a month ago now with the, the, yeah. sort of the amount of time I've been off, he sort of, he's a classic example of a director who peaked very early and his first film was really great, but everything else sort of frittered away. I think he eventually ended up working in television. Incidentally, um, I watched the end of the MasterChef semi-final the other week and Frank Rodham's name came up. I don't know whether it's the same one, but if so, it's an interesting career jump, you know, from the director of Quadrophenia to Quail's Eggs in MasterChef. Yeah, because he's the, um, the divisor of the theme. We shall have to go and look it up. Any thoughts on that? Text us in, whether it's the same Frank Rodham. Yeah, or if he's listening, is it yes. the same Frank Rodham? Yes. Um, there is also a connection we just need to touch on between this and a company called Handmade Films. Um, are you familiar with their work? Yes, I am, yes. Yeah, the company set up in 79 to distribute Life of Brian after EMI yeah. sort of got cold feet and pulled out, and this was the first project that they made after Life of Brian became a hit, despite the yeah. fact that it was banned in certain parts of the country, just went to the bits where it wasn't banned. Yeah. And afterwards, you know, it made things like Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits and Private Function and With Nell and I, which is, which we've talked about on a previous podcast. Um, so the plot, to, to set it up, um, Bob Hoskins, in his sort of star-making role, and what, for my money, is still his finest performance, he plays Harold Shand, who is a self-made London gangster at the height of his powers, and he controls most of London, all the gang wars have been at peace for something like ten years, and he wants to give the impression that he's respectable. Not straight, but yeah. respectable. And at the beginning of the film, he is convincing a representative of the American Mafia called uh, Charlie, who's played by um, silent movie actor Eddie Considine, yeah. um, he, to go into business with him. So uh, 
No, basically, he wants the American Mafia to put up the money for him to buy up the London Docklands so that he can build an Olympic stadium on there ready for the 1988 Olympics, which Britain was bidding for at the time. Um, at the beginning of the film, he's holding a party to sort of, to rub shoulders with the Americans and celebrate the first part of the deal going through. Meanwhile, one of his right-hand man, men, who happens to be also closetly homosexual, is brutally murdered in a swimming pool by a very young Pierce Brosnan in what is his very first film appearance. Um, and that starts off a kind of unravelling of Shan's empire because he believes that it's the rival gang sort of coming back to sort of take revenge yeah. and to scupper the deal. But it turns out that maybe other forces are involved. And we don't want to give away what they are just yet because that's, that's sort of the type, that's sort of the premise of the film. Um, Here's the thing. The Longer Friday is part of a select group of films which are both of their time in the sense that they have a very clear political context, but they're also incredibly ahead of the curve. I mean, I saw this again less than six months ago, and it is extraordinary just how fresh it looks, even yeah. though it's over yeah. 30 years old and all the politics have sort of passed over. So you take the sort of... It manages to take the thriller connect conventions, which has sort of been pioneered through the likes of The French Connection and Get Carter, you know, which was among the first thrillers to sort of take a look at the sort of grimy side of life in a very honest and realistic way, and sort of marries that with a political thesis about the me generation, and in a slightly prophetic way, the government of Margaret Thatcher, although yeah. she'd only just come in when the film was made. You know, people, it was very prophetic about what would happen, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, we'll, we'll come on to the politics a little bit either. So, and it's still... Also incredibly shocking. I mean, it's an 18th certificate film. I think it would have been an X when first released, and uh, there is full-on stuff in it, which yeah. we'll, we'll come on to, but, uh, no. I think the closest comparison out of the ones I've mentioned so far, it, it's the film which, it couldn't have existed without Get Carter, and there is a sort of through line with it because, not just because of its sort of gritty, rough-around-the-edges look, but also you have a sort of through line in the characters between Jack Carter, played by Michael Caine, and Harold Shan, in the sense yeah. that they're, they're ruthless, they're emotionally warped, and they have their origins in genre. You know, Michael Caine's character is sort of comes out of pulp westerns and, uh, you know, just pulp fiction in general, whereas Shan, as will become clear, is more sort of Shakespearean. There's a sort of real sort of echoes of King Lear in his performance, you know, and not in a sort of over-the-top pompous Kenneth Branagh way, but in a, no, just a sort of interesting, thinly-veiled yeah. sort of way. And in the hands of a lesser director, this could have been just a very sort of nuts-and-bolts revenge film, but John McKenzie, whether because he just worked very quickly or just because he understood the subtext of the the script by Barry Keefe just under, just just keeps things driving forward and keeps things smart, even when people are sort of beating the living daylights out of each other. <laughs> Um, the only other, th unfortunately, they also have a similarity between this and Get Carter, which is that the opening is a bit slow. The opening of the film, um, before the sort of stuff in the swimming pool, yeah. you see a, a, a guy coming across, um, a plane from London with a sort of briefcase which has got money in and sort of taking a bit of the money and the briefcase ends up in Northern Ireland and then the house is raided and, you know, all the little bits of that are introduced in that opening section over the credits are sort of tied up towards the end of the film. But if you didn't know anything about the film when you were coming to see it, yeah. you might think, okay, um, what's that? Uh, yeah, I don't know where this is going. Apparently this was a less elaborate version of what John McKenzie originally wanted to do, was that he wanted to use a lot of the budget to go location shooting in the Alps and see the money sort of coming all the way over <laughs> from Switzerland and then going through France and so forth. Yeah. But the producer said, basically, no, yeah. too expensive and it's too distracting from London, so keep it small. Yeah. Um, so the opening's a bit weak, but then the second you see Bob Hoskins come on screen first, the film just comes to life, and from then on, it's just a roller coaster ride. I mean, that opening shot of him 
no, co coming off Concord, striding through Heathrow Airport like he owns the place, and in fairness, he probably does, to the soundtrack, to the, backed by the soundtrack of Francis Monkman, which is just this, this really gripping, um, mixture of sort of synthesizers and saxophones, so you get sort of jazz and electronic yeah. pop, it's really, you know, and he just, Hoskins, for all the sort of up and down nature of his career after this, he really manages to sort of hold himself as just this this arrogant man who sort of feels like he has the world at his feet and like he can do anything. It's just, I mean, it's very believable. He's not somebody you'd want to meet down the street, is he? Absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, Hoskins, up until that point, he'd sort of... Because he'd just done Pennies from Heaven on television, but he still wasn't a big star, and this was the sort of thing that made yeah. him. Um, so he's a man who sort of kept the peace for ten years through sort of intimidation, like you said, and he is very full-on. And it's a very ironic introduction, because you sort of, as things go on, you realise, that's the happiest we're ever going to see him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the character of Harold Shand is, it conveys the sort of central of the idea of the film, which is that it's about the decline and fall of an empire, but rather than being through a sort of mix of outside pressure from whether it's gangsters or maybe the IRA, but we won't give that away, and sort of mix of personal tragedy. And this is where the King Lear connection comes in. I mean, if you know anything about Shakespeare, and I dare say that you do know quite a lot. Bit. Yes, quite a lot. But the central idea about Shakespeare's tragedies is that all Shakespeare's tragic leads have one sort of big character flaw, which is the start of their downfall. So yeah. in the case of Othello, it's jealousy, the fact that he can't yes. control it. In the case of Macbeth, it's cowardice, because he always, well, in one version, he's always doing what his wife tells him. Yeah. And in the case of Lear, it's pride. In the, you know, the story of King Lear, when he sort of disinherits one of his daughters, he's someone who thinks, you know, I've been on the throne ages and ages, what I say is right, no one can question me, because I know everything. Yeah. But meanwhile, there's this plot going on involving illegitimate sons to try and, you know, supplant him. And there is a real sort of through line, not just in the characterization of Harold Shand as this guy who feels like, you know, I know absolutely everything, and if you get in my way, you don't stand a chance. <laughs> but also, <laughs> lovely accent, lovely accent. <laughs> I promise I won't do that again. But it's also the idea of, um, the, you know, the sequence in King Lear towards the end where Cordelia has hung herself on the tree, and King Lear sort of yeah. finds it, and that's the moment when the scale sort of falls of his eyes, like the What Have I Done speech. Mm. Um, there is a through line with that in a more sort of graphic way when there's a sort of young kid who's like sort of 25 positioning himself to take over from Shand and he's sort of got a surrogate father-son relationship with him and he ends up accidentally killing him by hitting him on the head with a broken bottle and then it cuts his yeah. jugular and it's a real sort of moment of my life is falling apart what have I done I'm destroying yeah. the very things I've worked so hard to create so you have that sort of rich character study at the heart of the film alongside that you have the sort of the political subtext the first of which is about the threat of the ira which you know we've been sort of skirting around it and i'll try not to give away the exact involvement they are because that is one of the sort of big twists of the film suffice to say that the original title of the screenplay was the paddy factor which was changed to um yeah it's probably a make it choice. a bit more subtle <laughs> yes um so but it's the title of the longer friday i mean it's it's a very sort of ambiguous title because it could refer to the troubles in Northern Ireland because they were nicknamed the Long War as well yeah. or you can or it refers to you know the uh, the sort of the actual biblical connotations and of course you know there was a yeah. lot amount of you know, religious tension in the Northern Ireland conflict aside from just you know short-term political gains but what the what the film manages to do very well in this case is it manages to take this sort of 
this political threat, this political organization, and explore it in a way which actually makes it seem not credit, not creditable in the sense that it condones what they're doing, but in the way that they seem believable. I mean, if you've seen um, Michael Collins, the film about the IRA from yeah, its early yeah. days with Liam Neeson and Alan Rickman doing a very bad Irish accent, um, that's a sort of film which which wanted to examine sort of the Irish Republican Army or the Irish Republican Brotherhood as it was then, but it sort of did it from arm's length so that you always felt like these people were just terrorists, whereas what this this film does it, it says, yes, they're still terrorists in the sense that they are blowing things up and they are sort of taking over yeah. London. But on the other hand, you can understand why they're doing it. I mean, it, it doesn't condone what they're doing, but it makes, but it portrays them as, as more than simply sort of yeah. distant Fenian psychopaths, yes. if you want to put it that way. Yeah. Um, then you have the sort of the more sort of well-known undercurrent, which is about the sort of resurgence of free market capitalism in the late 70s and subsequently the government of Margaret Thatcher. I mean, you have things like Shand, he doesn't call it his sort of firm or uh, an empire, he calls it the corporation, yeah. as if he wants to appear sort of respectable. <laughs> and the film sort of draws an analogy between the dismantling of socialism under, no, well, under the government of James Callaghan, aside from anything else, and the sort of the violent takeover of London. So when you have the speeches early in the films about um, um, Shan sort of saying, you know, we're, we're going to sort of take on the world and no, London's going to be the set, no, the great capital of Europe. The, it, there is a sort of rich sense of irony. It's that sort of mix of 80s sort of xenophobia and just desire to be wealthy at any cost. And in the end, you have that sort of sense of ambition and xenophobia just smashed to pieces by the reality of what happens. I mean, if you've... There are subsequent films like Wall Street and American Psycho which sort of take the notion of 80s greed and explore it yeah. much more broadly. I mean, in the case of American Psycho, much more psychotically. Um, but this is, this is much more intelligent in the way that it sort of looks at the, the self-reflexive nature of greed, the idea of, um, yeah. you know, if you set out to do these things, you'll end up being undone by your very intentions. Yeah. Um, much like American Psycho, however, there is, although it would appear that there's a very sort of serious sort of po-faced political idea that the film was made by people who were worried about, you know, not so much socialism being taken away, but about, you know, massive inequality and racial inequality being promoted. Well, not promoted, but sort of not being disencouraged. There's actually a lot of humour in The Long Good Friday. I mean, it seems an odd thing to say for a film which involves, you know, people being stabbed in swimming pools and in one sequence someone being crucified, literally crucified yeah. on a floor, hence the 18th certificate. But there is a sort of the script has got a load of really sort of corking one-liners, and Hoskins delivers them absolutely brilliantly. There's a line when he's he's waiting on his yacht for Charlie to arrive, talking with his wife, played by Helen Mirren, saying, you know, the Yanks love snobbery. Um, they really feel like they've arrived in England if the upper classes treat them like, and then insert expletive. Mm. And there's another one, sort of, which captures the irony of the script, where he's, it's just after a car bomb has blown off outside a Catholic church, and one of his drivers has been killed, and he says, you can't go crucifying people outside a church, not on Good Friday. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But it's that sort of thing of... Yeah. The writers know what they're doing, but it's the contradiction in terms of, uh, sort of captures the mood of the film of there's humour in there, but it's also sort of dark and slightly yeah. existential, bleak humour. So in terms of the performances, I do think it is Hoskins' finest work. I mean, I like his, his sort of lighter stuff that he did later in his career, like um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and um, Shattered, the um, Wolfgang Peterson film. I almost said Oscar Peterson because that's a mm -hmm. jazz musician. Equally good for my money is Helen Mirren who, again, at that point wasn't such a big film star. She was, um, at that point, in the RSC, I think. Yeah, Memphis. I think she was, but, I mean, I'd forgotten she was in until I was just uh, getting ready for the show, and, uh, yeah, she's, uh, yes. Yeah. She, um, 
she's actually qu she's actually quite a happy accident because when the script was originally written and she sort of took the role, the role of Harold Chan's wife was much more sort of trophy wife bimbo sort of character. <laughs> yeah. And she became sort of like, well, not the Lady Macbeth sort of figure, but the, the sort of right-hand closest ally as a result of Helen Mirren sort of twisting John Mackenzie's arm. Yeah. Can I change this? Can I improvise in this bit? And he said, well, we've got 20 minutes, so yes, have a go. <laughs> and they actually, and this, so it works. Um, and the, her relationship hints towards the idea, which has been explored in other films, but not quite as well as Longer Friday, which is that power is a natural aphrodisiac. And it's the idea of, you know, on the surface, you wouldn't put someone as sort of rough and ready as Bob Hoskins and someone as classy as Helen Mirren together. Yeah. But it's the whole idea of she's attracted to the influence that he has, and she, her, her love for him comes as much out of sexual attraction as it does out of sort of admiration yeah. for the power that he exudes. There's also brief supporting performance by an actor with a great name called P.H. Moriarty, who plays... <laughs> uh, lovely name. That's a wonderful name. And he is um, Razors, who's um, Hoskins' sort of right-hand man. He's got the sort of scarred face and cuts up the guy who's um, was later in Only Fools and Horses, whose name escapes me. He also has a Paul very... Paul Barber. Paul Barber, yeah. He's also very briefly in Quadrophenia as um, the barman whom Jimmy scores the drugs from in the Quadrophenia. So, just to kind of round this off because we've got the new releases to do it's a very visceral film which like i say there is a lot of sort of flesh ripping violence in it like the shower sequence like the crucifixion like the car bombs but it isn't just sort of gratuitous violence because the film has substance running all the way through it the dialogue is always sort of crisp it still feels fresh there's real tension in there because you know the idea of um this guy who you know you get the sense of a world which is sort of crumbling and um just it just feels you, you're put right in the center of Shan's world, and so that when he does commit the violent attacks, either himself or sort of instructing his hoodlums yeah. to do it, you don't sort of go, yeah, go on, get those people. You, you sort of, you find yourself sort of in his own quandary, and that is captured brilliantly by the ending of the film in which, you know, he, the American Mafia are going to leave, and he does this blistering speech of how cowardly they are, and then he ends up in a car with, well... We won't give away the ending, but yeah. suffice to say, it's poetic justice. Yes, indeed, and then yeah. you have that wonderful four-minute sequence yeah. at the end. So it's it's not a perfect film, but it's it's visceral, it's dark, it's gritty, and it's still it looks every bit as intelligent and more prophetic with every viewing. And it's still Hoskins' final performance. So check it out. Yeah, a great film indeed. Uh, it's nice to remember it because it's a long time since I've seen it, so that's been good. Yeah. Right, we'll have a look at the new releases after this. Lionheart Radio. So that was the long overdue Good Friday, and next week we have got... Angel Heart, um, a late 80s effort from Alan Parker, whom we talked about uh, a month ago with Pink Floyd The Wall. Yes, that should be uh, interesting. Mm. Trying to, try to remember if I remember that one. That's the right way of well, saying it. Well, you've got it. a week to see it. Yes, so indeed. Okay, it. let's have a look at the uh, the new releases. We'll start with Hannah. Okay, this is the film of the week, so um, probably a good idea to get it out uh, straight away. It's the new film by Joe Wright, who um, previously directed things like um, Pride and Prejudice and Atonement, most recently did The Soloist. Um, have you seen Atonement? Uh, yes, yes. yes. It's not a bad film. Um, so, starring, um, among others, um, Eric Banner, who's pretty good, Kate Blanchett, who is in Lord of the Rings, yeah. so 
instantly like her. And Saoirse Ronan, who, for my money, is a really terrific young actress. I think yeah. she's not, she's only 18 still, but she's done a lot of very, really interesting work. Um, so the story is, um, you have a girl called Hannah, played by Saoirse Ronan, who is 16 years old. She's growing up in the wilds of Finland with her father, played by Eric Banner. And she's been trained since she was very young to be an assassin and sort of been kept outside the world of modern technology, you know, the internet and so forth. When her father thinks she's ready, um, he sends a signal of her whereabouts to this corrupt CIA agent played by Kate Blanchett who starts hunting her down. And the rest of the film plays out as a sort of action thriller with sort of fairy tale elements in it. It's a very interesting blend of genres because up until now, based upon the list that I've sort of given you, Wright has been a sort of very painterly director who does literary adaptations. And if yeah. you've seen Atonement, there's that famous five-minute long tracking shot of the uh, the clearing of Dunkirk. You know, it's it's very sort of pretty to look at, but you know, there comes a point where you think, come on, just get on with it. <laughs> um, this is much more of a sort of, like I say, an action thriller. There are fairy tale elements in it because of the sort of, not just the tone of it, but also the way that Hannah is characterised. You have sort of... There's a there's a, a line in the film when he says that she's been brought up on only two books, which are the Encyclopedia Britannica and the Book of Grimm's Fairy Tales. Yeah. And there are hints of, I suppose, Little Red Riding Hood with her as Riding Hood and Kate Blanchett's character as the wolf, or alternatively Hansel and Gretel with her sort of you no know, father as Hansel, her as Gretel, and and yeah. um, Kate Blanchett as the uh, the witch. So, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was just saying. I remember reading about this one, the preview, and I was thinking, would it stay the right side of credibility? How do you mean? Uh, you know, this is a very, <coughs> at face value, unbelievable storyline. Well, there are big, there is a central plot hole, which I will acknowledge, which is that if you are wanting to hide out in Finland and escape from the CIA, surely the natural thing to do is blend in rather than become an assassin. So I accept that there is that contrivance. And, but, um, and like all Joe Wright films, this does sort of lurch around in turn. I mean, there are broad comedy elements yeah. which don't quite work, like the scene involving a hippie van, which, you yeah. know, just seems a bit sort of telegraphed. But I do think it is worth seeing because Saoirse Ronan is a terrific young actress. I mean, she was in Atonement very briefly as the young girl who finds the letter. She was also in The Lovely Bones, in which that's that's not a very good film at all, but she's by far and away the best thing in it. And it's an interesting kind of... It's an interesting story. I mean, it is flawed, but it it sort of works and it has that nice little tone to it. And I do yeah. think it's Wright's most interesting film to date. I also remember going to see Mr and Mrs Smith, which I think is a great film, but it never managed to keep the right side of credible no um, that isn't that is a very uncredible film <laughs> but uh yeah okay so that's what we're going to see water for elephants yeah is the next one um based on an historical novel by sarah gruen which i haven't read uh, directed by francis lawrence who is best known as a music video director but he has made a couple of films um he made constantine which is the sort of um supernatural action thriller which isn't either uh, entertaining or thrilling with um keanu reeves and most recently made the recent version of i am legend with will smith which sort of wasn't as good as the omega man from the 60s the story is it's told in flashback you have a character called jacob who's played by robert pattinson who is knows or r pats as the twilight fans call him he stows away on a circus train after the bank take away his home because it's set in the great depression uh, through some contrived plot device he he becomes the vet of a circus which is run by Christoph Waltz and he ends up having a sort of romantic attraction to the owner's wife who's played by Reese Witherspoon. It's a very sort of old-fashioned melodrama in the sense that, you know, the performances seem pretty decent. I mean, it's nice to see Christoph Waltz 
not just playing Colonel Hans Lander from Inglorious. <coughs> can't say the full title of that, even though it's misspelled. And there is a supporting performance amongst, no, not Robert Pattinson's fine, but there is a supporting performance by Hal Holbrook, who, if you remember, All the President's Men is Deep Throat. Yeah. And he's also at the end of The Fog, the John Carpenter film. And yeah, he's now I remember. Very interesting character actor. So, being a melodrama as it is, it, 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 the emotions are sort of very very clearly drawn and it is one of those films like a place in the sun where you know where it's going after the first 15 minutes you can say okay well he's going to end up with her and they're, they're yeah. going to fight and that elephant's going to go there and that sort of thing i mean there's no elephants in place in the sun but no it would have been improved if there was so i think if you're a fan of things like a place in the sun or i suppose the closest comparison would be the greatest show on earth with charlton heston yeah and i will th then i think you'll find a sort of a nostalgic pleasure in living it out because it is a very sort of old-fashioned hollywood film if on the other hand you're someone like me who finds a lot of melodramas not all of them i mean the work of pal and pressburger are great and they're essentially melodramas but if you find a lot of such films do sort of get creaky and predictable too easily then i think he will lose patience with water for elephants quite quickly so yeah. it might be an age gap it might be a gender divide because women might bond to it more easily than men but you know it's a marmite film is what i'm trying to say right okay 3d film next so do we start with it was it worth it no um because it was retrofitted so they didn't intend to do it in 3d in the first place it's uh the film is priest it's a spiritual sequel no pun intended yeah. to a film called legion from last year which was very little seen uh, directed by scott stewart and starring paul bettany um i'm, I'm a paul bettany fan yeah he's great yeah. yes um still he was in um a beautiful mind wasn't he yes he was yeah, yes i still think that's the best thing he's done um so the story is it takes place in a post-apocalyptic future in which vampires and priests have been fighting for thousands of years going back to credibility yeah. uh, and uh, the priests have now sort of drifted into obscurity after a time of yeah. peace and then suddenly paul bettany's daughter is kidnapped by this new band of vampires and he has to go out and save her now within this there is a sort of half interesting story about the idea you know there is a whole thing in vampire fiction about vampirism as being a rejection of or a war against yeah. god there's that sequence in um francis Ford coppola's dracula of gary oldman sort of cursing god for taking away his love and sort of pledging to become a vampire to find her so there is that sort of thread through and the lead legion although it was completely and utterly stupid was quite good fun in a sort of you know it was angels with machine guns sort of way but you could sort of enjoy yeah. it this however is a bit dull um it's directed by like i say scott stewart who has a sort of visual effects background so while it looks good in terms of you know it's cgi and it's action yeah. set pieces there's not much in the way of characters to carry it along as well i mean it's like um have you seen um a film called big trouble in little china no i didn't uh, john carpenter film uh, no. from the mid 80s and the problem with that is that it's sort of there's all sorts of hokey deliberately hokey special effects like yeah. sort of lasers coming out of people's eyes and electricity and so forth but you just don't care about the people that it's happening to and it's the same sort of sensation with priests so how do you retrofit 3d you bet you take a, t a 2d film and you put it essentially through a computer program which you create a skeleton in it's difficult to describe you know if you're um creating a shape in a computer you sort of yeah. create a net and then you fold it up into a 3d object yeah well imagine creating all those nets in the shape of sort of characters and objects and then layering the film on top of it so it's it's sort of like you're creating sort of hills and bumps in a 2d image so that it looks like it's 3d yeah. but it isn't actually 3d doesn't sound as if it's going to be very convincing it isn't convincing i mean i've only seen one retrofitted uh 3d film which i think was um clash of the titans and it didn't work at all it just no there's occasional moments when people point at the screen but that's as 3d yeah. as it gets right 
13 Assassins. Yeah. Um, new film by Takashi Miike is a Japanese filmmaker best known for a horror film called Audition, which is very difficult to sit through. I tried sitting through it once, and no, after the first 25 minutes, it gets very tough. You know, starts off as a rom-com, but then there's sort of tongues and needles involved, and I'm yeah. squeamish about the latter, to some extent. It's a remake of a film with the same name from 1963, produced by Jeremy Thomas, who is a British producer who's sort of uh, credited with bringing a lot of Japanese works into the mainstream, because he produced uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, and The Last Emperor, which I think won the Best Picture Oscar that year, didn't it? Something like that. Yes. Yeah. Um, so that's a very interesting film. The story revolves around, you have two outdated so institutions of Japan. On the one hand, you have a very sort of sadistic warlord who doesn't want peace, is only happy when the country's in a state of war, and um, he goes around sort of, you know, burning villages and pillaging and you know, raping women and so forth. On the other hand, you have this the 13 assassins of the title who are sort of samurai in an age when samurai is sort of fading, and their, their goal is to die in honour of, of a great cause, and they're sort of hired to stop the warlord in the way of sort of things like Seven Samurai, which inspired Magnificent Seven and so forth. Like many sort of samurai or, or war films from Japan, part of the pleasure of 13 Assassins is just watching the fight sequences. I mean, if you've seen things like Crouching Target, Hidden Dragon, yeah, or yes, Hero, or yeah. House of Flying, all the work of, of Zhang Jimu and Ang Lee, yeah. which do that sort of thing of incredibly elaborate things of people kind of running on bamboo and running yeah. on water and that sort of thing. Far more fun than gun scenes, aren't they? Yes. Well, there are many inventive gun scenes <laughs> in the films as well, but no, th yeah. there, is a, there is a beauty in just watching those, even yeah. if they don't have any sort of narrative quality. It's, it's like the things about the, uh, the films of Bruce Lee. You could watch yeah. things like Enter the Dragon and not clear two bits about the plot, yeah. but you could just watch him doing his fighting and so forth, and you knew that because it wasn't sort of cutting every, every, every other second, you knew he was doing it all in yeah. one take. And so it's worth seeing if you're a fan of sort of samurai or revenge tales, or if you like the work of Kurosawa, like Seven Samurai. I mean, I don't think it's going to be up there with Kurosawa because he set the bar very high. Yeah. But it's it's a very interesting genre piece, and Takashi Miike is an interesting director. Right. Okay. And finally, this week, something borrowed. Yeah, it's the new romantic comedy from Matt Greenfield. He previously helmed a film called The Girl Next Door, which, if you've been following this program for a while, is the guy who used to host this poor young. It was one of his sort of guilty pleasure films. <laughs> Which I, <laughs> which I never understood because I think it's rubbish. So, I mean, I think on this occasion, the Wikipedia plot summary will tell you everything you need to know, and I have edited this a bit for reasons that will become clear. Rachel White, played by Jennifer Goodwin, is an unhappy, single, talented attorney working in a New York law firm. Rachel drinks too much on her 30th birthday and wakes up to find herself in bed with Dex, Colin Egglesfield, the man whom she has had a crush on since law school. The problem is he is also her best friend Darcy's, played by Kate Hudson's, fiancé. However, Darcy is said to be an expletive deleted. And relationships are tested while a long-trusted friend, Ethan, John Krasinski, stands by Rachel with a secret of his own. So, you know essentially what you're going to get from Classic that. American rom-com stuff. <laughs> yes, yes, apparently this is based on a novel, which makes it all the more surprising that they could produce something quite so derivative. Oh, I don't know, there are quite a few novels out there you'd have to say were derivative as well in that, uh, that area. Such as? Well, I mean, all that sort of Mills and Boone stuff. Yes, I mean, I think this is a little more upmarket than Mills Boone. So, the, the plot summary tells you pretty much everything you know. It's, it's badly made candy floss, essentially. It'll be in one ear and out the other. The only thing that's notable about it is that it has a production credit for Hilary Swank, 
which only goes to show that she needs to get her career back on track as soon as possible. Right, okay, so the recommendations for this week are? The film of the week is Hannah, followed by 13 Assassins. I mean, I think Hannah's going to get a wider release, although because of yeah. Jeremy Thomas's connection, it'll, 13 yes. Assassins will be playing in more places than others. And those out at the moment, it's Source Code. It's Source Code or, uh, or Thor is the other recommendation, but definitely Source Code. Great, well, it's been good to have you back. Yes. And you're here hopefully next week between 10 and 11. Yes, I'm, I've, I've got a... A job interview over Thursday and Friday in uh, East London, but I should be back in time. Well, good luck for that, and Thank we'll you. see you next week. And taking us out, as promised, it's Queen and Flash. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.